Welcome back to the Two Dudes Three Legs podcast with your host, Zach Dingy. Tony Capaletti. Today, we sit down with Nick Becker. An old family friend. That's right. We share his story. And Good my God, PV boy. is it a story? From the military, being overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, to leukemia, to being in politics, he's got some crazy shit that he talks about on this podcast. A lot of perspective here, people. You're going to want to stick around. He's lived a lot of life, and this is a great story, so tune in. Oh, you fucking want to be famous. <laughs> Guys are looking sharp. Zach Dingy, Tony Capoletti. Three Legs Podcast, where we share business tips, interview experts, and travel the world. This week on Two Dudes, Three Legs. So, Nick, you have had quite an interesting journey in this thing we call life. You've lived many different lives. Yeah. You, you're a veteran. Yep. Thank you for your service. Appreciate it. You. You're Thanks. a cancer survivor. Yep. And I think the hardest thing of all was you worked in po- politics. That's tough. That's tough. Yeah, that was that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I did a little bit of everything in politics. I uh, I ran for a local office. I also worked on campaigns, and then I also worked in the government side of things, where I was a uh, constituent services representative for um, a couple of congressmen in the area too. So, uh, you know, I got to talk to constituents through that, and then I got to serve through on the town board, and then. Yeah, I got to see like the political side of things for campaigning and stuff like that. So right, well, let's run it back. I want to start. So you graduate out of high school, mm-hmm. and you make your way into the armed forces. Yep, right after high school. Play us, th- play us through how that happens. Pretty much. So, um, I actually went. So right after I graduated, I actually went to Western New England College that fall semester of what would have been my freshman year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you know what a low GPA was. <laughs> <laughs> low GPA. Anyway, I don't even think it was like a one. So um, <laughs> I always wanted to join the military. Were you playing so, ball there or anything? Were you? I, so, no, I, uh, I was actually doing Army ROTC there. Um, so, so you had plans. I had plans. My, at that point, the goal was to go through college and then go into the Army as an officer at that point. Um, but then, um, you know, first semester away from home and, uh, came back after the first semester and decided to, uh, to enlist. Mm. And so I enlisted that January of 20 of 2007, um, into army into the, so I, I enlisted into the army national guard. Um, and then I, but I went to basic training, the, regular army basic training, like uh, active duty goes. I did that. I came home and I think within like a year, um, like constant deployments were coming up because at the time we were in two wars, you know, we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what year is this? 2007, 2008. 2007. Okay. And then, um, and then actually my, my uncle, uh, Trevor Eurista, who's also a Pleasant Valley native, who's got an interesting history at Arlington too, like doing senior pranks and things like that. And his father actually worked at Arlington. He was a tech teacher, I think, or something like that. But all, anyway. All Arlington boys. Yep. He, uh, he was killed in action um, in Afghanistan in 2008. And I think like the next day I called my unit commander and I was like, Hey, put me on a deployment list. Like, let's go. Like, let's, let's get out of here. I wow. can't, I can't be here. So that takes some balls. 
I don't know. I think it was just an emotional reaction really at the start, you know. Yeah. Um, but, to, but to think like, wow, we just lost someone. I need to go to where that happened and, and be part of that. That's I think that takes a man. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're being nice. I think more it was more about revenge um, than anything. Oh, so you were emotionally overtaken by that situation. Yeah. I mean, I was very close to them. He was definitely very he was he was my uncle, but he was more like a big brother to me. Okay. You know? we, were, we were really close. Um, so, so then. And typically when someone asks to be deployed, does that just mean all of a sudden they're going to deploy you? You ask and then they do it? Yeah. I mean, at that time, right. So that was only six, seven years after 9-11 happened. So yeah, I mean, there were constant rotations, constant deployments, even, you know, national guard, active duty guys, like it was all one basically at that time. Um, so uh, within, I think, six months, I was put in a unit up out of the Albany area out of Latham, New York. Um, and, uh, and then by the summer of 2009, we were heading over to Iraq. So what was your role in the military when you were in Iraq? I was military police. Correct. Um, I did a lot of force protection. I did a lot of, uh, which just means I worked base security. Correct. Um, but I also did a lot of QRF, which is quick reaction force. So if if there was another unit in the area that got hit with an IED or got hit with small arms fire and needed backup, we would get the call. It, you know, every every area is breaking is broken down so that there are QRF forces in each zone, hmm. right? So in our zone, we were one of the QRF forces. So we would get called if anyone was hit in our area, um, and then we were the first to respond, either to secure an area to sit on an area or to do whatever else. So are you guys trained in like paramedics in case there's injury? And yeah, so we were pretty well trained. I mean, um, all the way up to putting IVs in each other. If, if we needed to, ha, huh. got some crazy stories on practicing, putting IVs into each other from especially people we didn't really like. Oh, geez. Well, tell <laughs> one. <laughs> Yeah, like, come here. I don't like you. I'm going to practice my IV training. <laughs> Poke it four or five times. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, oh, I think I missed it. Uh, I can't. Oh, that thing keeps on disappearing. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of kit are you uh, uh, geared up with? What kind of equipment are you using over there? When you're called for QRF. So I had a full, I, I had a full kit um, in terms of I had my M9 ammo for the M9, which is a nine millimeter uh, Beretta. Um, and then I had, um, you know, a full body armor and then on top of the body armor, I had like M4 ammo and things like that. I was, a uh, I was still young. I was still like brand new basically. So I was the lowest ranking guy. So I was up in the turret in, in a Humvee. Um, so I had an M4, but I also had, uh, a 50 cal wow. weapon up on, up on top. Um, so I had that. I had like the M4 sort of like in the turret next to me. And then I had the 50 cal like right the here. Mod deuce? The mod Yeah, the mod. <laughs> That's the most mod badass. Freaking deuce. I feel that's like the most badass gun in the, the lower rank. World. You said you're a lower ranking official, but I feel like that's a badass fucking position to be in on the turret. Yeah, you felt pretty badass when you were up there. You did feel invincible. Yeah. yeah. I remember right. I remember like getting, we got our base got, uh, and we had a really small, small base. Like it was an outpost. Got it. Um, so getting hit with artillery or, you know, like rounds from the outside, um, 
didn't really miss much, right? Because we were such a small base. And I remember the first time we got hit, I was, I was like angry, you know, like I wasn't really, like I was, I guess I was scared of them for like the first few seconds, but then I just got angry. Like, man, these guys are trying to fucking kill me, you know? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if you ever had that feeling before, but, mm-hmm. and then, you know, just being up in that turret, getting ready to go out and trying to find the people that just did that. That was a feeling I'll never forget. Yeah, that was crazy. And you fired on locations where you believe people to be? That specific incident, no, because by the time we got, so we have, we had um, capabilities of knowing exactly, we call it the poo site. So it was the point of origin site of Mm. where that came from. So by the time we got there, it was two trucks, two pickup trucks um, with like mortar tubes in 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 the back. Um, is that a booby trap? Was that rigged up? It, it could have been. In that case, no, it okay. wasn't. We did call EOD, you know, EOD, uh, which is the guys that come and take care of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, that that wasn't that wasn't rigged, um, and everyone was gone by the time we got there. So you know, there was no actual firefight or anything like that. How uh-huh. often were you in like real gunfights or firefights or shootings? Like, how often were you? I shouldn't say. Let me ask, how often were you called out to go after shooting? Like every day, this is a daily thing? No, no. Where, where, where we were in Iraq, we were in Basra, Iraq, uh, which is like the southern part of Iraq. Um, for the most part, anytime we did hear IEDs going off or hear small arms fire, it was mostly actually just for annoyance. Um, annoyance? Annoyance. Like them just... Just trying to mess with us a little bit, yeah. right? So either it's them trying to... It's part of their tactic. It is. It's about it's, all they can do, right? They're, they're, they're trying to learn our tactics, right? So they might they might do something to see how we respond, it's and then watch. they adapt to that. So like mm. our techniques were constantly ad- adapting because their techniques were constantly adapting, yep. right? Once when they figured out that we had, you know, really good ways of sniffing out their IEDs in the ground that they would plant before they blew up... Um, they created this thing called, an, uh, I think it's called, I don't even remember. It's called like EDF or something like that, where it like came out the side of like a, it was on the side of the road and it was like an explosion that would come out and just rip through any car or truck or anything from, from the side. So instead of it coming up from underneath like an IED, yeah. they built it so that it would come across. Um, and then we would adapt, right? We would get up armored vehicles and like things like that. And, and so we would, we would. But they were always, it seemed like they were always one step ahead. Right. Interesting. Yeah. What were, what are some of the daily bullshit that you have to deal with when you're out there? Like things people would never think about, I don't know, going to the bathroom, working out, (laughs) whatever it is, like the shit that nobody thinks about, but it's just a nuisance all the time. Yeah. So I think one thing is, one thing that drove me crazy anyway, was just sort of like the standards and the rules that went along with them. Mm -hmm. So like. It could be two o'clock in the morning and you got to, you got to take a leak, right? Well, army says that, or at least our commander said that if you were going from the tent, anywhere outside the tent, our tent, you had to be either in full uniform or if you were like going to the bathroom or want to take a shower or something like that, you had to have your PT uniform, which was just your shorts, a t-shirt, but it had to be tucked in. Mm-hmm. And like you had to be fully shaved no matter what time of night or day it was. And so like just 
just the fact that waking up at three o'clock in the morning, maybe you were in your boxers and you were walking literally from me to Bryce to go to the porta potty, right? Like no one else was out there, right? Like you had to get dressed. Like, cause if you got caught, (laughs) you didn't want the consequences, right? So you just had to do, you just had to do it. So like stuff like that, um, you know, we had, we didn't really have hot meals where we were. Um, I thought everything was hot over there. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking leave it outside. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What was the, was there like drugs and alcohol abuse, uh, over there? Uh, can I plead the fifth? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. But by pleading the fifth, you've said a lot. (laughs) No, I mean, look, I, I don't know about like drugs, but we weren't technically allowed to have alcohol. Okay, I didn't know that. Were there were there nights where we were able to find some Iraqi whiskey? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, Were were there nights where we did a little bonfire and my buddy had a little guitar and we kind of enjoyed the night? Yeah, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, what's it like? Are you on the job twenty four seven, three six? Like like when you're there, you're just you're on it. So yes and no, right? So yes, in, in, in the sense that if, if something does happen, like if your base is about to be overrun or if there is an attack or if there is a mortar attack or something like that, you need to be ready to go like you this. You need to be ready like that. Um, however, there are missions that you go out and usually the missions are when you're, when you get back from the mission, like if you have to do a convoy, like I did some convoy security stuff over there where, or some personal security stuff where I'd have to go out on a mission to protect a colonel from going from point A to point B. Mm. And so we would be his security team and stuff like that. I did a lot more of that when I was in Afghanistan a couple of years later. That's pretty much all I did in Afghanistan. But um, for Iraq, we had missions. So when I worked uh, force protection, um, it was like 12-hour shifts. And generally speaking, as long as everything was calm and you know not anything crazy going on, at the end of that shift, yeah, you were you were done. You didn't have to do anything for another twelve hours. So you go to the gym. We had a we had a gym. Well, I wouldn't call it a great gym, but it was a gym. Um, went for a run around the compound, you know, things like that. Stayed in shape, and then the rest of your time was the rest of your time. Or was it like in the movies where like uh, the compound itself was built by like you know like out of just straight up like two by fours and just like you guys were building it yourselves and. Taking care of everything yourself? I mean, by the time I got there, the base was already built. Uh, I think the British actually were in control of that area, like during the invasion of Iraq. So they they were the ones that built the base. But it was um, basically these huge bags, huge bags filled, filled with sand and then like T-wall, so like concrete wall barriers mm. about, I don't know, I would, now I would guess 15 to 20 feet high. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was it was on us to kind of keep it together, keep it going, and stuff like that. Was we there were, AC in there? We had AC in our tents. We, we we were able to get AC in our tents. Okay. The one thing that sucked was we didn't have AC in the, the porta potties. Oh God. Um. So imagine if you have to. Oh, that sucks. You could probably still smell it at four o'clock in the afternoon after oh, the rest of the hundred people. Use it. Yeah. Use it. Oh, God. I mean, we had more than one, but still. <laughs> oh. Okay, so you did 120 little... degree heat. Oh, <laughs> like, you did God. two tours, correct? I did two tours. Okay, so take, me, the through, take me through your mentality. You're, you're, you're fresh. You're going on your first tour. You're flying out to a foreign country. 
going to war. Tell me about the man who left for war versus the man who came back from his first tour. Tell me how that changed you. It actually opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that I think, I think with anyone that, that goes and, and experiences something, not what they're used to. Right. So it opened my eyes completely to what, like what I would call true poverty really is. Mm. Right. Like they're, they're dirt poor. Like it's, it's, and, and the, and, and, and it's completely different from how their middle class and their lower class is completely different than how our middle class and lower classes. And they do, they do have a lower class. They do have a middle class and they do have an upper class. Again, it's completely different. So that, so that in the back of my mind, coming home sort of really changed from the, I, I went over there angry, like I said, because of my uncle. I came back with friends and relationships that I developed that were Iraqi mm. and of the local culture. And I appreciated that a lot more um, as I got to know them and as I got to sort of experience their culture and, and everything. So I really, it really opened my eyes to, uh, to just be more open-minded in general, I guess. What year did you come back, Nick, uh, from the first tour? Uh, you went over around 2008. I, t I, w I went over in 2000, in the beginning of 2009, I came back in like middle of 2010. And was the tour anything like you thought it was going to be what you had anticipated? You know, I, I really thought, I, I really didn't know what to think. Yeah. Um, you, 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 you train and you go through the motions, right. And, and you're co sort of expecting through the training that you're going to you're going to save the world, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you're feeling like you watch the movie Sniper and you watch all these movies and you're like, ah, yeah, I want to be a hero. And then you go over there and it's like, okay, well, I'm doing my part. And there's other people doing their part. And for, and like, obviously Sniper was a Navy SEAL sniper. I was not a Navy SEAL sniper, but you know, you watch those movies and you think like, yeah, I could see myself doing that. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think... I think it was just sort of relative in, in that sense. Okay. So you come back. Sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. You come back from the first tour. You have this new appreciation, I'm sure, for where we come from yeah. after seeing the other side. Definitely. And then your second tour, you're forced to go on it. You opt again to go. How does that happen? I opted again to go. Okay. And you're going out there this time, not angry. Nope. But just to go do your service. So the second time through, I realized that I was good at it. I was, I, I knew that in a panic type situation, you everything operate. actually slowed down for me. Mm. Some people, it doesn't slow down. Anytime I'm in a stressful situation, anytime it's, it's most people would think of them like not knowing what to do mm -hmm. for whatever reason, it just all kind of slowed down for me a little bit. Um, I also was given the opportunity to go to personal security school through the Department of Defense prior to my second deployment. And so the, the catch was if I went to that school or I would get to go to that school if I deployed with, the, with this unit that was going to Afghanistan. Mm. So, and, that, and that's a rare opportunity for someone um, in, the, in the National Guard. Usually that's reserved for your active duty guys. Um, so you excelled. Yeah. 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 It was, it was great. And well, then Afghanistan, how, how many years was that? 
uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. I did about, I think it was like 11 months in country. Okay. Got it. And yeah. similar experience, the poverty or, and. So that I will say, I, I, uh, when I got to kind of go out into the area, um, outside the base, which was a lot. Um, most of it was on a Blackhawk because I was actually working for a two-star general at the time, mm. um, being his security detail, me and a, a team of, of guys. Um, and that's the most high up person you worked around, I assume through both deployments. Yeah. 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 That was, yeah. Yep. That's high up two-star general. Yeah. He, so Afghanistan was broken up into four because it was a NATO, that was a NATO mission. So Iraq wasn't a NATO mission, but Afghanistan was. And so, because we had, you know, the Italians, the British, the almost, well, all of the NATO countries, um, each zone was designated for a different, uh, commanding officer. I was in RC North um, in Afghanistan, and uh, that was a two-star Marine Corps general. Yep. How badass is it to fly around in a fucking black hole? You have no fucking clue. <laughs> it is so badass. That is I like mean, a dream of, I think, everybody. And it, that, yeah. That thing's outfitted with 50 yeah. cows on the side and probably the... the What's it called? The, the, two, uh, the, the 240 Bravo, I think, was on there. The 50 Cal. Um, I got to shoot an M240 yeah. in Florida. Yeah. In fully auto. That's, that's exactly what we had. the best three yeah. seconds of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Fucking yeah. sick. Yeah. 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 That's a fun weapon to shoot. Yeah. And definitely. wait, d- doesn't the Blackhawk have a, have a Gatling gun or am I just moving? Like, do I? Th- I don't know. So the. So. To be completely honest, I was part of the security detail. I wasn't on the actual weapon systems. Right. It was the army. It was the the Black Hawk team members. Yeah. That were on the weapon systems. I know there was a two forty. I know there's a fifty gal. There might have been a Gatling on one of them too. I, I'm so just sick. not. I'm not sure. I just know that when uh, when the general got off the the bird, so did we. That's it. Or actually, yeah. we got off the bird and then got off yeah, the bird. Yeah. What, uh, what was the most dangerous situation you found yourself in in, in either uh, place? So I guess it's all about perspective. Yeah. I would say, and uh, this is when one of my close buddies got, um, got injured, um, not from um, any combat or enemy contact or anything like that. But what happened was we had, we got thrown together a mission almost at the last second for the general to go out to this provincial area to do sort of a meet and greet, or I don't know if it was a meet and greet, it was some sort of meeting with the provincial uh, people, um, Afghan governor or something like that. Um, We had just coming off a 12 hour shift, our, like not me, but the, the, part of our unit had just come off a 12 hour shift and no sleep. And instead of taking the birds, they, the general, for some reason, because it was close, I think is the reason, um, wanted to take the, the up armored vehicles out there. And so what, so when a general travels somewhere, it's not just the general, right? It's yeah. the general, it's a, it's his Sergeant major that's supporting him administratively. And then it's the Lieutenant that's supporting the, so and then there's state department guys probably a couple cia guys so we had a big 
on like a big, big group of people. Yep. All right. And somehow we got tasked with doing this mission where we had four or five trucks, I think maybe three or four trucks and our drivers didn't get any sleep. And now I was on the security detail. So my job was to stay in the back with the general and basically to get out with him, go to the meeting while the other guys stayed in the vehicles. That way, when he goes back, we can just mount up and, and head back. Right. Yep. Well, one of our drivers was turning the corner and he, so in Afghanistan on every main road, there's these huge, like, I don't know what you even call them, not culverts, but like a barrier, like, like holes along the side of the road. Really? Right. There's like huge sewage type shit, like, like sewage type shit. Yeah. 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 And so when he was making a right hand turn, he overcut the back tire. And so that back tire got stuck in that in that ditch right oh god so um we we now we knew that there was intel that the area is at the time was mostly safe yeah what you would call safe in that area we also knew that um kunduz a, a town that was probably about a 45 minute helicopter flight was also being taking contact, small arms fire the day before, a couple of days before that. Not really anything crazy, but they were just annoying them again, trying to see probably our response, trying to trying to see out. Which is funny. A couple of months after I left Afghanistan, Kunduz fell to the Taliban um, oh, after that. Wow. But so that's why we were a little nervous. And uh, even being like, even having mortars coming at me uh, in Iraq and. And taking a little, a couple of pop shots here and there, you know, like that never really scared me. This moment scared me because now we had to get out of the vehicles. We had to expose ourselves in the middle of a city. Like this yeah. was like picture there. Uh, this was Masri Sharif. So picture like, I don't know, Baltimore, right? Mm. Right. So it was like Baltimore, right? Big so um, not New York City, but still a, large a pretty city. large yeah. city. And we... <laughs> And I, so I have them in my ear. I can hear what's going on. And we have guys that never had been outside the wire. It's completely freaking out over the headsets. Now, purposely, I didn't give the general or the sergeant major a headset just so that if something did happen, they wouldn't have to hear all this crap that was going on. And um, one of my closest buddies um, decided that he was going to sort of take charge of the situation, which... You know, he was higher ranking. He was a E6, a staff sergeant. Um, and so he got out of the vehicle in front of us. So I was in the vehicle that got stuck in the culvert or whatever you want to call it. He got out of the vehicle in front of us to sort of be a guide to back the vehicle up and then hook up our whatever you want, the, the ropes to, to sort of pull us yeah. out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The driver didn't see him or lost contact or lost visual with him. And he got crushed between two trucks. Oh, holy fuck. So then, so now he's down. We're trying to call for a medevac. The general wants to keep going to the meeting. He's not really exactly sure what's going on with the whole thing. He doesn't yeah. really know we have a casualty at that point. And it's, you know, he's, he's in life or death. And he's one of my closest friends, you know, over there. And, uh. And so I sort of had to zone that out and we kind of charged on. And then on the way back, once when the meeting was done, even though we were only 25 minutes away, we still had to call for a medevac, come pop smoke. And we rushed him over to the medevac and he went right to the, 
the hospital on on the base. I know that doesn't really sound dangerous, but with the intel that we had from the Kunduz thing, yeah. like if any yeah, sniper you guys were are with high up, profile yeah. targets, right? Exactly. At, so that anything could go down at any moment, and you've put yourself in a precarious situation where, right. if they were ever going to attack. That was that the would have been that like, would have been the key moment, and we had tired drivers, we had tired crew. Like right. it would have been it, that mission storm. That mission never down. should have happened. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and you know, I even voiced my concerns before that mission to our leadership, and they were like, "Well, no, we got to do the job." You know? Yeah, so yeah. That's like a that's fear just, of the unknown thing. It's like when you're getting shot at, you're getting shot. Well, it's at. also a but when you don't know what's about yeah. to happen, and yeah. you're in the middle of the shit, you're like, yeah. you don't know what the fuck's coming. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Jesus. So but he's doing okay now. Yeah. Um, what happened to the guy? You get crushed so, by two fucking. Yeah. So he got run. he got medevac to the to the hospital on base, and then he got flown. I think the day the day after, or re- relatively soon after that, to Germany, and then he got flown back to Walter Reed, um, and he had to go through some obvious like he had he had some internal stuff crushed going his on. ribs shit like that absolutely like, yeah. yeah and some like organs some issues with organs and stuff. Yeah. But he's doing great now, man. I mean, he he's one of the toughest sons of bitches I've ever met. So um, he actually deployed with me to Iraq too. So him and I, him and I, this was our second deployment. He went nice. to PSD school with me too, which is why he deployed um, quick after that too. So him and I like have always been pretty close. Yeah. Do uh, and he was NYPD. He was NYPD for years. He was before? Port Authority. Yeah. 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 So. And now, so you do this tour and you said you were doing it so that you could gain access to a course for, what was it again you said? PSD. So so they said part of our mission that we got assigned from Army Command, whatever, says that we, part of our mission is to do uh, security services for the RC North Commander, right? So in order for us to be able to do that, we have to send a certain number of guys to PSD school at that time, that unit that I was in, it was a different unit from the unit that I deployed with previously in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't really have anyone that had combat experience. Um, and they especially didn't really have that many people that had PSD experience already. And so, and I didn't, I wouldn't say that I had PSD experience from Iraq, but I had been on a couple of missions where I worked PSD. I don't really know if that makes sense, but I basically set up in a gun on a PSD mission, making sure nobody messed with us. That's pretty much all I did. Yeah. Um, but but because I think of my just general experience overall, they asked me if I wanted to do that. Um, and so I went to that. That took about a month, I think, or a little over a month. Came back from that. A couple months later, went, uh, went over to Afghanistan. Yep. Okay. Now, a lot of it sounds very... Everything sounds very organized. And then there's another part of my head that thinks it's very chaotic. So how are your experiences on each mission documented and what, uh, how do they gauge it? You know, cause you're out there with an isolated unit having, having an experience that could be, you know, crazy, whether, whether there's kills or whether there's uh, crazy things going on, then how is that documented on the back end after? Like officially documented? I don't know. Yeah. Is it or is it not? So I think some of it is and and some of it isn't. Um, One thing that I got to do in Afghanistan was actually pretty cool too. I think because of my experience and because of like other, for whatever other reasons, I also got put on a team that would actually go out into the cities in in our area, in the towns. Um, We went to the local jails. So what happens is, is if... 
army special forces or we were working with German special forces as well. So if the German special forces or our army special forces got wind of any kind of Taliban contacts or any kind of anything suspicious going on, what they would do is, is they would go out and they would grab the guys and throw them in a local prison um, under sort of under our command, not it wasn't in a U.S. prison. It was in a local prison, like a town prison or something like that. But then our job, so this was separate from the PSD. Our job was to then go into these prisons, make sure that the prisoners were being treated according to the Geneva Convention, make sure that, but we also wanted to get information too, right? So we had like this, it's called a hide, batten hide system. And we would take their fingerprints, we would take their eye scan, and we put down information, we put down their names, so that if they try to cross the border in Pakistan a couple months later for some extra bad guy training or something like that, it would pop up and we'd be able to know. Yeah, so yeah, we have a, it's a huge database that we'd have. So that was, that was a fun. And I will say that there was one time when I was in Afghanistan and when, we, when I was meeting with one of the... Uh, one of the prisoners in the prison and you know when you just look at someone and you can tell they hate you mm-hmm. and you know that they just want to do bad things to you that was what this guy was looking at like me how did that make you feel oh well it's interesting you say that because the only <laughs> thing i could think of was at in that moment was this guy's obviously doing something wrong yeah he hasn't had a trial i don't know if he's actually taliban or anything but he's obviously doing something wrong because he's looking at me with, or maybe he just hates me because I'm American. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, I don't really like him either, right? And the only thing I could think about at that moment was my uncle. Mm. So I was like, I was, and you know, it's it's me and him and like one other, uh, I had a, a German soldier, which by the way, I still hang out, or I still talk to uh, some of the German guys that I deployed with. They're freaking awesome, man. They're rock stars. Um, sounded like you were a rock star over there. No, I was just a small piece, small piece, man. So did you fly out, um, before, uh, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan? Um, no. So you were there when was that? No, no, no. So he, he, I think he was killed in 2011. So you were gone. I was, I didn't go to Afghanistan until 2012. So it was after, it was actually after that mission happened. Understood it. Yeah. Did you have any proximity to that mission at all or have any? No, okay. no. I was in the States. I was just as surprised as anyone else. Got and it. Yeah, no, I was, I was probably at Madison's when, when that. Hanging out with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Understood. All yeah. right. I want to move this on to chapter two, cause you have a lot of uh, uh, interesting life experience. So, so you come back, you're retired from the army. I mean, not if, not like technically retired. I actually came back and I was still in the Army National Guard. With plans to deploy again? Um, not right away. Um, not necessarily with plans to, to deploy again. I was kind of trying to figure out my... So I was still in the Army National Guard at the time. So when I came back, I was mostly a civilian mm-hmm. with the, the training requirements, right? Like one week in a month, two weeks a year stuff. So I had to figure out like if I was going to go to school, if I was going to get a job, like I was kind of trying to do that. Okay. And then the next large life experience you run into is leukemia. Yeah. Tell us about how that starts. So I was, 
uh, you remember uh, Tim Stabell? Yeah, yeah, I know Timmy. Timmy, yeah, my boy. Timmy, yeah. So I was I was working out a lot. I was going to Golds a lot, and Jimmy uh, Timmy was kind of my my trainer because mm. um, he knew a lot about that lifting stuff a lot more than I did. And uh, we were working out every day. I had just got a job offer to go do PSD work back in Baghdad um, for a civilian contractor, though, not through the military. That's got to pay very well. Very, very well. Yes. I forget what it was. It was, but it was, it was well over a hundred grand a year. And I think it was something like, I think it was like 120 for a 10 month contract. Mm. Um, is that to be a mercenary? And the first 80 is tax free. Private security. I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it mercenaries. Cause like mercenaries are kind of like the guys in Russia, the, the Wagner group that just go out and like fight wars. What my job was going to be was going to like work for, as a civilian contractor, work for the State Department. And when their foreign service officers went out into like the public to like do whatever it is that they do, right? Have meetings with local officials and stuff like that. I would be their personal security detail. So like the secret service for the president type type things. Super dope. Got it, man. Crazy. So, so, you- so anyway, so yeah, so I was, I was, uh, Working out with him, I was getting ready to leave. I was leaving for North Carolina for training for that company. And then shortly after that, I was going to Iraq. But I want to say it was like six or seven days before I left for that training. I got like a toothache. And then it developed into a fever and it developed into more pain. My whole face was like swollen up. It looked like I had a baseball in my cheek. Mm. And I had no idea what the hell was going on. I went to try to get the uh, dentist, try to try to figure out if I could just get my teeth removed or, you know, whatever it was, because I had to leave soon, you know. They said, uh, they put me on antibiotics, they weren't working. So they said, all right, we'll go to the ER. You know, you need to go to the ER. You need to get that checked out. Go to the ER and, yeah, in the ER, some, this guy comes up and he's like, we think you have leukemia. I look at him. I didn't even know what leukemia was, to be honest with you, right? Like, I, I, I mean, I, I figured it was like a cancer, but I didn't really know exactly what kind of cancer or what it was. I look at him like, no, no, there's just no way. I honestly thought that they got it wrong. I thought that they mixed up paperwork or something. They mixed up the tests, something like that. Like, I was just like, I'm, I'm just about to go do my dream job. You know, this is my last gig. Like, this was it. Like, you know, and how old were you at the time? Twenty-five, I think. Dude. Twenty-five. Holy shit. Uh, and uh and yeah man no it was it was leukemia how do they even test for that i don't understand you're in er they give me a a full panel blood test and so leukemia is a blood cancer um and so my white blood cell my white blood cell count was through the roof i don't remember exactly what the numbers were but they were you know like 10 times higher than what they should have been and usually when they see a white cell count like that it's usually some sort of leukemia or lymphoma or you know something something in that area of and, cancer and when people think leukemia typically they typically think of childhood uh, leukemia, right correct correct so, so is there any kind of uh reasoning explanation that you ever found for how that is acquired so i am i am 97 percent sure that um and this might be a whole new session, but I just did a research paper actually at Vassar uh, on this. Um, I'm pretty sure that I got it through being in Iraq 
Um, really? So back in the 90s, if you remember, I don't know if you guys know this, but there was this thing called the Gulf War Syndrome. All these soldiers from the from the 1990 war, the, the Saudi war, or not the Saudi war, I'm sorry, the Gulf War. Um, all these soldiers came home, they would get sick, they had different ailments, some of them had cancer, some of them had other issues going on. Um, and the army never really, or the military, the DOD never really looked into it too much. I mean, I think they knew what it was. So in my research, they knew what it was and they, they knew that if they admitted to it, that it would just, it would be, it would be, it would bankrupt the United States of America because of how many lawsuits it would bring. Wow. Um, so back in the seventies and eighties, we started making munitions that could penetrate. We were in a, we were in a fight with the Soviet union, right. To conquer the world or whatever you want to call it. And so we had to figure out how we could beat their better armored tanks over in Germany, East Germany and West Germany, right at the time. So the Russians came out with a new weapon that, that had unbelievable, up armored tanks. So we had to figure out how to penetrate those tanks um, because at the time we didn't have any weapons like that. It, it would have just literally hit it. What, whatever we had, it would have hit it and it would have fell right off the side. Fell right off the side. So we started putting depleted uranium in our munitions. Um, and at the time... Holy shit. And right. And so now if you go to any of the old test ranges, almost all of them are either shut down mm. or they're owned by the Department of Defense or they're owned by the Department of Energy or they're owned by the Department of Army mm. and they're locked down so nobody can get, get on them because of all, all of the residual. Oh, yeah. And that is almost like a, a clear sign of a cover-up, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, now, yeah. depleted uranium. I've gone, through, I've gone through NSC records from the 70s with, with Ford, back, back to when Ford was president, when he took over after Nixon, talking about the use of not not actually talking about, but when it was when it was brought up in the conversation he was having with the generals in the Oval Office, they said, "Well, we'll talk about that at a different time," because they knew that that transcript was being recorded. Mm. I mean, it's not that it's not that crazy. I mean, you're literally exposed to carcinogens. Carcinogens cause cancer, radioactive material, nuclear. Exactly. Material. Well, I mean, at the time they were they were claiming that because it was depleted uranium that there was no wow. carcinogenic effect, but Research now and over the last five to 10 years, I would say, has basically proven. And, and another thing was saying that the low doses of that uranium, of that, that radioactive part of it, they were saying, oh, there's no way that that could cause cancer. But now they're actually seeing results like people in factories that have depleted uranium, people in like nurses or techs in the medical field that use like x-rays and stuff. They're, they're doing studies now of all of these nurses and techs and everything to see that low doses of radioactive material, like, and it can be depleted uranium or whatever. Have a carcinogenic effect. Yeah. Okay. So, and now why are they putting this in munition? That, that creates so, armor-piercing rounds? So that the kinetic energy explodes when it, when it, so the energy from, from the munition into like the side of a tank. So that, the product of that kinetic energy 
will actually go into, it will be hard enough and forceful enough to get into the tank instead of just bouncing off. Okay. So that was the purpose of the initial. So it has extreme density. Right. And it's okay. mini, mini explosions. Right? Basically, mini yeah. Mini, mini. Is that, so how do they make armor piercing rounds now? That's like a pr- prototype armor piercing round? So I, I don't know exactly if armored piercing rounds have the depleted uranium in them. I just know that they're designed specifically to, to go through armor. I don't know if there's, I don't, I, I didn't do the research on like the, okay. like a M not right. Like a, yeah. right. Um, but what I will say is that we dropped a shit ton of freaking ammunition on areas in Iraq and at the Kuwaiti border in the nineties with depleted, uranium. with depleted uranium and you and handled it. There are cancers, the cancer rate in Southern Iraq and in other areas in Iraq, and then in the Baltics during the Kosovo conflict, and then in Afghanistan, the cancer rates on the local population is absolutely insane. And this is what your paper supports. Yes. That's incredible. Wait, now, how does it, because you said this is in the 90s, how does it actually translate to when you were in the military? Because you were in those areas, right. the same areas? Because it was in the areas, and it, it sort of got into the groundwater, it got yeah. into the sand, it got into the air, but also, and then in 2001, when we went in, we used the same ammunition in the same areas, mm. right? So it's it's sort of like a double effect in, in those areas, which is really what's causing a, in my, it's it's causing a really bad crisis in, in Iraq right now. So when you get diagnosed with leukemia, obviously you, you kind of uh, uh, rebelled against it and said like, fuck you, that's not real. What's the, what happens when it actually becomes real? You're, I'm assuming you're in the hospital. There's some kind of something happening right away. Yeah. So I got put in, um, I was lucky enough to get into the bone marrow transplant down in uh, New York Presbyterian, which is a great team. And I owe all of my life. Um, I, I don't remember this, but, but, um, you know, my mom told me later on that, I don't know if she was just told this, she says that I was told this too, I think, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. But, you know, she said that I had around a 20% chance of living at the time because the leukemia was so intense, um, and throughout my entire bloodstream. Um, so, so they were able to do a bone marrow transplant. So they, they, they did chemo. Chemo didn't work. It would, it, would, it would disappear, but then it would come back within a matter of days. So then they had to do a bone marrow transplant pretty much right away. Um, got my, the, the donor was actually from Germany. Uh, they actually flew the bone marrow from him to, from Germany over to the United States. So that was kind of interesting. interesting yeah. um, so can you explain the extreme measures that it takes to do a bone marrow transplant? Because obviously bone marrow is present in every bone in your body. And what's that, that like? How many surgeries? How crazy is it? How rare? So the bone marrow transplant itself, I was pretty drugged up when that happened. I can't really tell you that I remember much of it. I do remember there being pain in the beginning and then pain sort of at the end as I was coming like in and out of the fog. Right. Um, but it was, it was sort of like a 24 hour period and I got really lucky. I, my body had a really good response to it. Mm. A lot of people are not as lucky and as fortunate as I was. They have complications they have issues in the middle of it they have to redo it over and over again like sometimes it doesn't take and so it can be it can be really hard um, to deal with physically and just mentally but for me like I said I got lucky it only did it once I my process was was it it I was attached to an IV it went through an IV 
I was drugged up pretty good. So I was listening to like, you know, Tom Petty and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Having a good old time. Having a good old time myself. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there was, there were some moments there where it was interesting. So it goes to an IV. I wasn't expecting that. And I feel like I'm stupid now, but my thought is they're taking bone marrow in there. So literally transplanting it. So when they, when they test your bone marrow, Right. So they have to do a bone marrow biopsy yeah. to like test it before and after. And then repeatedly over the every two or three months for years after that, the bone marrow biopsies hurt like a motherfucker. Mm. They're basically taking a needle yeah, that big oh, and they're sticking it in your back, in your lower back or in your upper butt or somewhere oh. back there. Oh. And they're going all the way till, you, oh, till it touches the bone. And then they God. literally have to scrape the bone. So that that hurts, yeah, and and that's just a local anesthetic which barely works. So that's not that's not any kind of fuck that. Yeah, but so I had to do that a few times. That wasn't fun. Jesus. So as soon as a bone marrow transplant happens, or you react well to it, is that like, hey, you're pretty much? That's what I thought. Yeah, that's okay. what you thought. That's what I thought. I mean, I will say that I've been in remission since then. Okay. But I've had complication after complication after complication from the drugs, from the chemo, from the bone marrow transplant itself. Like it, it saves your life, but all these drugs, the chemo and everything, it also destroys your body too. Yeah. Um, I've had two full hip replacements. Oh my God. It weakens um, your bones that much? So what happens is, is either the steroids or the bone marrow transplant. So I was on a shit ton of steroids after um, prednisone mostly. And the, between the steroids and the bone marrow transplant, they're not really sure which one did it. It could have been a combination. Of, it was probably a combination of both. But um, it gave me um, avascular necrosis, which is a disease that basically sucks the oxygen out of your blood around the joints, which then eventually eats away at your joints. Mm. Um, because you don't have that blood flow, you don't have the circulation, and then your, the bone around your joint, it just, it just collapses. Um, and so I have it in both of my knees still, but the pain, my knees haven't collapsed and the pain is, is not, it's not bad. I mean, some days are worse than, than others, you know, but um, for the most part, I can get around on them. I don't want to get the replacements of my knees yet because as soon as you get them, then you're on like a clock, right? Then you got to get them every 10 or 15 years or oh, however long it is. So like my hips are on a clock right now. So you know, but my hips got really bad to the point where I couldn't walk for a, for a long time. Damn. So, and that's from that disease, your hips from too? From that disease. Yep. My hips, my knees, my shoulder, my right shoulder. Um, even I feel like I get really bad pain in my ankles uh, sometimes. So I wouldn't be, I haven't actually gotten like x-rays and stuff on them, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in there because um, some days are just the pain is unbearable. So just to, to get back to the timeline a little bit, yep. you're diagnosed. Yep. Bone marrow transplant happened. You're diagnosed in what year? 20... January of 2015. 2015. Then you get bone marrow transplant, which is a success. Success. What year is that? That was later that year. I believe it was like July or August of that year, I want to say. But that's not the end of it. Then you need right. to be on medicines. Um, right. So I had to stay down in the city, not in the hospital, but they have like this, like, uh, so my, so when you get a bone marrow transplant and chemo, your immune system is shot. They basically tell you you're a baby. So you can't go outside. <laughs> you can't yeah, go anywhere, right? Shit. You can't well, eat food anywhere. Like everything has to be fresh food, literally made right in front of you so that wow. you don't get any kind of anything. Um, cause any kind of small sickness, I'll a take cold, you right out 
could kill me yeah. at that point because my immune system is just shot. There my is goodness. no immune system. So for the longest time, I kind of had to sort of isolate myself. And um, how do they build that back up? It just takes time. It takes time. Hold up now. I got to stop right there. Or I got to go with what you just said right there. You have to isolate yourself after all that. Can people come and see you or is that even dangerous? That is dangerous. People can come and see you as long as they know that they are healthy. They have to wear a mask and I'm wearing a mask. So basically like COVID, right? Damn, Everyone had to wear a mask. Wow. I had to wear a mask. They had to wear a mask. How tough was that? It was tough. How Being long did isolated? that last too? 2016 to how long? I don't know. I mean, I would say maybe. So that was at, in like August of, or maybe July of 2015. So probably maybe to the beginning of 2016 was really the most strict aspects of it and mm -hmm. then after that it, it i really couldn't really eat out for a while still but like i could like i could like hang out with people and i could kind of like if people wanted to come over to the house my parents house um i could kind of see them and like we could be outside you know like that was a big thing my doctor said yeah if you want to go hang out outside you know then that way it's not as you know inside you know and the germs aren't getting around and stuff like that but um I would say by mid 2016, I didn't really have to worry about that at all anymore. So for about a year, I would okay. say maybe a little less. And yeah. then your life starts to return to normalcy somewhat because you have, you know, you I mean, I was, I was in and out of the hospital because every time I would get a cold or every time oh, I would, shit, it was bad. I would have a stomach bug where I was. Yeah. Right. So like every time any, anything like that was like, okay, you have to be on IV uh, hydration. You have to be on IV antibiotics. So you have to go back. So I was in and out of the hospital for a good two years. Because everything's that. high risk for you. Exactly. Because you're okay. immunocompromised. Yes. And yep. are you still? Technically. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, technically, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not immune compromised like I was right back then. five years ago. Yeah. So like was COVID extra fucked up like were you not able to go anywhere <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah uh, covid was extra stressful for me uh, um Jesus. but i think we yeah. have an interesting theme on the show that we re uh, it's recurring we kind of hear about different people's trauma and their story and you seem like especially in your line of work and um the way you are you're like really solid and like maybe like non-reactive to things like this um did you feel like you had to support your loved ones around you for what was going on with you when really you should have been the one that was like, you know, like emotionally. Uh, I would say that I, I didn't feel like I had to support them. I would say that I, I definitely saw them hurting because mm -hmm. of what was going on with me. And um, I knew in my mind through everything that I've already been through, through the military, through deployments, through basic training, like I knew that I was resilient. I knew that I had a very good mental approach to all this. So, yeah, I mean, there were times where I, I told, I, I would just look at my mom and I would say, stop crying. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get through this. Like, it's not going to fucking beat me. Like I'm going to fucking win. Like you're like, making I, like sure I know she's it. okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is backwards um, in a sense. Yeah, it is and it isn't though, because I've been yeah. there. You know, when, yeah, I'm sure you've been when there. people came yeah. out to support me, I, I always had to tell everyone, "I'm fine. I'm yeah. good. I'm, a, I'm not dead." Yeah. And 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 I I feel like a lot of people think you're just saying that, but I mean, for me, I I really felt it, right? Like I'm yeah. sure for you, the same yeah. thing. Like I, yeah. 
Yeah. And when people are constantly worried about you, it's like, no, it's, it's done. It's we're good. Yeah. It's like, you want to put it away and continue on. I just want to be treated like everybody else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yep. All right. So you're, hold on. I have one more, th- I have one more part. Cause I know it must've been also like really, really hard because like you, you were away for a long time. Like every, you had like a whole community of people that like you were like a part of, right. This community of people and everyone knew you, you were a popular dude. And then like you, you know, people might've not seen you for like a number of years because of your deployments, you come back and then maybe they still didn't see you until your diagnosis. And like your appearance changed a lot. Was there like a level of like, like people were looking at you like way different. Not- Absolutely. You know, it's funny you say that because I completely forgot about this, but I mean, I mean, look at me now, right? Like you knew me back when, yeah, your back appearance then, definitely you know, yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, um, and then when I was on the steroids, what, what, the, what prednisone does is it really blows up. And I'm sure you've seen pictures on some social media somewhere of me I where saw the I comparison was comparison on Facebook. Yeah. I'm referencing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I would walk up to people that I've known my whole life in that moment, right. Where I was blown up and my neck was blown up and, um, and everything. And, and they would look right and my eyes were puffy and they would look right at me and be like, and they would shake my hand saying, but I could just tell that with their, their look in their eyes, they had no clue who I was. Mm. Wow. And uh, that's how, and so, and I would, I would go into Madison's or I'd go into the public house or I'd go into wherever. And yeah, I'd, I'd get some weird looks, right? Like I would get like some looks like the hell's that, <laughs> you know, like I tell people, I literally look like the Michelin man. I was like, you know, like, you know, like just everything about me was, um, and so, yeah, that was a little hard in the beginning, but again, like I, I knew that it was, it is what it is. It was what it was. Right. right. So, um, for but, me to just h- kind of hide in the corner or hide in my house or hide in my apartment, you know, like that's not me. Not an option. Yeah. yeah I remember so. that. I remember seeing you and I, and I, and I didn't know, recognize yeah. you. And then also like on top of that, being that you had went and served for our country and then you get that, yeah. like that makes me fucking pissed. Yeah. What I will say is there were a few fundraisers thrown for me to help me through. And I, you know, I still have medical bills, but, um, I couldn't tell you where I'd be right now if I didn't have help from the community. I mean, like you said, like I, I knew a lot of people in, especially in Pleasant Valley. Um, yeah. And, you know, shout out to PV because, man, I love you guys. And I couldn't have, I really don't think I could have made it this far um, without the help and support and the love of everyone in Pleasant Valley that helped out. I mean, yeah, the fundraisers, just, I can't even tell you. For me and my family, um, going to get me a little teary-eyed here. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, look, I, I, come, I, I know I try to come off as tough and brave, but, you know, there's been times where suicide was a real thought in my head. Uh, for a long time and a few times and uh, I'm not ashamed to talk about it now you know but um, I actually just lost a, a very dear friend of mine who grew up in Pleasant Valley with me went to high school with me and uh, to suicide yeah I'm sorry um, to hear that I've lost a couple a veteran thing. friends that yeah same thing how did so. you get through that because you know what was your way to <sighs> quick, get rid of those thoughts before you answer that when was it in the midst of what time frame I would say after I was in remission there was complication after complication so besides that I had 
I, I had a, uh, I had a heart attack. I oh had God. congestive heart failure. I had, um, what do you call it? When the blood, what is it called? Leg, uh, clot? leg clots. I would get leg clots. Um, I had all of these things happen to me at one after another, after another. And so it was, it was a grind. It was a, I had to be stable mentally uh, through that time period. And it wasn't even really the cancer fight. It was everything that happened after, after I was in remission for the longest time too. I was in and out of the hospital. I couldn't get my, like, all I wanted to do was get my life back together. Yeah. Um, I remember when I got diagnosed with the AVN, the doctor was like, you never ever, like one of the things that I love doing, um, because of the military was running or jogging, yeah. working out. He's like, if you want to, if you want to keep your knees and, and hips and stuff, you're never going to be able to run again. Damn bro. And that's, and I, at the time I was still technically in the army national guard cause they hadn't medically discharged me yet. Mm-hmm. And like the plan was like, I was in remission, you know, I was this and that I was thinking I was going to be able to, de- my unit would just got the call to deploy again. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back with these guys. You know, I freaking trained these guys. Or I, I deployed with these guys, you know, like hell yeah, I'm going back. And then the, the news from the, from the guy was like, yeah, you're never going to be able to. And as soon as he said, you're never going to be able to run again, I knew I couldn't be in the army anymore. Right. <laughs> I think so. working out too is such a coping mechanism for it anyone is. like, like, yeah. You know, it's for fucking for me. It's everything. Like, yeah, I I, I run. I ran two marathons. I run Spartan races. I run all kinds of shit. So, are you able what to work out your... to agree a degree now? Sorry, very good. Cut you off. Not really. What I is mean, your coping mechanism now? What is your so so to tie that in with one of the other questions was was how, how I think one I think either Bryce um, or you asked was you know how did I get through that? Yeah, right. So coping mechanism, coping mechanism and how I got through that was my parents actually bought me a dog. Mm. And I mean, uh, that dog is my best fucking friend. I love that. He cuddles with me that. every night. He's uh, and, and so I, I thank thank whoever it is you want to thank. I'm uh, I'm actually engaged now, and I just we my fiance Congrats. and I bought a house a few months ago and everything. That is and awesome. congratulations! But one of the one of the th- thank you. But one of the things was, was she had to know that that dog was very high priority. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of dog? A Bernese Mountain Dog. Oh, the oh, best, snap. dude! A big motherfucker. Yeah, that's yeah. a bear. Yeah, and uh, we actually have two now. Uh, we have Motley, his his wife. They had puppies a couple of years ago. Cutest puppies. Dude, ever. I love this story. Um, this but, story. Uh, <laughs> my heart just warmed but, up. But I remember my toughest moments when I was really thinking about doing something stupid, right? Yeah. I remember specifically one time out of nowhere, Boomer was the name of my dog, just ran in from the other room, ran in, jumped up on the bed, and just started licking my face. They know. And I was crying. They I was know, I was literally on the brink. And he started licking my face, that motherfucking dog. Saved your life. And yeah, I mean, that dog, and I tell people all the time, that dog saved my life, and I don't really get into it like I just did. And they're just looking at me like, oh, yeah, no, it's funny. Yeah, he saved your life. He's a good dog. You actually know, did. But like literally, he probably saved my life. Yeah. That's incredible. So it, coping mechanism, I grabbed <laughs> yeah. that dog, 
and I cuddle up with him. Yeah, Dude. absolutely. How big is he? Like 150? No, no, no. He's he's. I I think the last time he got weighed, he was like 105. Oh, can okay. you send a picture to Bryce so that he can, can pop up on the screen? He's all over Facebook. We'll put him on. Boop. You better. I, I want I him on the pod. You can send it to me later. I have a I have a I have a whole Instagram of him and Motley. That's awesome. An account just for them. So yeah, I'll I'll shoot that over. I to love you. it. Shout out to Boomer. It. Yeah, good boy, Boom. Good boy, Boomer. <laughs> boom, boom. He's gonna be listening. <laughs> for dude, real. what a story, Nick. Holy so shit. I knew it was crazy, but dude, I didn't know it was this yeah. crazy, dude. Yeah. All right, yeah. let's get into the. Uh, That's not even the end of it. I know. Wait, I wanna. This is how I wanna segue it though, because yeah. you, you, I understand. Well, I, I can't say I understand, but holy shit, you're on this path. You come back from your second tour, you're ready to go for your dream job, and then you are diagnosed with leukemia, you beat it, and then you're like, okay, I'm going back, and then they put a nail in the coffin of your dream and say, you can't even run. So you're at the lowest of lows, but you're, you're still fighting every day, and boom comes in, back up. Here, here's your backup. He's keeping you alive. Yep, he's got my six. Yep, and absolutely. now after everything you've been to, you just everything you've been through, yeah. you decide politics. Well, yeah. Oh my <laughs> god. Well, yeah. How? What are the two biggest things that are affected by politics? Foreign affairs and healthcare. Yeah. Well, and I wish that was exactly wow. why. Um, That's a good point. I like I, that. I got to the point where I was. I was staying out of the hospital for about two to three months at a time, maybe four months if I got lucky. Um, and so I decided that I had to do something, right? I didn't, I, at that point, I qualified for social security because I had been sick. I qualified for Medicare and Medicaid and all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? I, I just can't do this. I, um, so I had to figure out how to reinvent myself because Obviously, I couldn't do what I was good at, which was the military or shooting stuff. And like, like I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, so I had to figure out something else. So I, I actually forgot um, how I found out about it, but I found out that there was a, um, an opening in, in the, on the town board in Pleasant Valley. Mm -hmm. There was a, a town board member, I guess, had resigned early or something like that before me. Um, and so I called him up and I said, Hey, what do I got to do? Like, yeah, I'd be interested. It was a, it was a part-time job. Right. So, and, and it wasn't demanding to the point where I had to do it every day or even, you know, every, every other day really. So I, I felt like it would have been a perfect fit at the time. And it was a way for me also to sort of give back to Pleasant Valley after everything that they had just done for me. I was thinking that. Yeah. So, um, I really wanted to try to help bring Pleasant Valley into the modern age, sort of just not necessarily anything crazy, but just, you know, rebuild the rec program, you know, for, for kids, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, like stupid little things like that, you know? Um, and so I applied and I, they accepted me. So I got on as an appointed person. And then I ran that fall for the seat for a one year term because I was still covering up for the other term for the other, the guy that, that resigned. Mm -hmm. And then I was on there for a year and then I had to run again. And so I ran again. So I ran twice and I got appointed once, but yeah, I was on the town board for a while. Um, and then I kind of got mixed up in some 
local campaigns and a congressional campaign. And that's how I got the job over at the congressman's office. Um, so that took me from there to there. Is that Mark Molinaro? No, that was uh, John Faso at the time. Oh, okay. And then, um, and then after John Faso, I, I did the a very similar job that I did for John Faso for, um, Anthony Delgado, yep. uh, or Tony Delgado. Um, he's now up in Albany. He's the Lieutenant governor of New York now. So, and those are conservative politicians, correct? Uh, John Faso was a conservative politician, but Antonio Delgado was a Democrat. Got it. Yeah. And you were doing what with them exactly? You were run- helping their campaign? So for, for the way I got onto um, Congressman Faso's sort of district office work was I, I did a little bit with his campaign originally as a volunteer, and then I kind of stayed in touch with him, and then an opening popped up and I got on there. Um, but then for Delgado's uh, position, I sort of I was ending ending with Faso. And just sort of transitioned, and then and then I kind of contacted them, and they said, "Yeah, we'd love to have you stay on as our veterans uh, liaison," um, which was cool because then I got to work with the VA, and I got to work with veterans in the area, and I got nice. to really try to make an impact there. Nice. Yeah. What's the best and the worst part about being in politics? Oh, I like that question. <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> All night, baby. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say the best part is um, just some of the personal responses you got from people. Like, like, hey, like, thank you. Right. Like, thanks for helping us out. Like, if, 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 I, if I can help you out, then I will. But, yeah. but some of that was, was just sort of the responses. And because that, you, you need that to kind of keep going. Yeah. Right. Because there's so much bad. The worst part was when I was working for Congressman Faso. And <laughs> I got a call one day from an angry constituent because of a certain vote that was happening on the House of Representatives floor in D.C. that day. And they were calling to voice their frustration. And I'm not getting gonna, I'm not going to get into left and right and, you know, that sort of stuff. But the guy on the other end was saying, how could Republicans do this? You're killing people. My wife has cancer. I hope you get cancer and die. Someone said that to you? Yeah. <sighs> and I was calm about it. I actually told the person exactly what I'd been through at that point. And him and I had about a 15 to 20 minute conversation. And we left that phone call. Um... I mean, we weren't friends, but I would say that we both calmed down and we both were able to kind of see the different sides of things. And it was, it, it ended up being a, a decent phone call. So even though the worst part of that was, was when he's, <laughs> when he told me I wish you get cancer and die. Um, I would say that probably the best part about it too, was also just like the, that sort of once when you realize like you get that emotional response out. Right. And then you can sit there and talk to someone and really sort of give that time and then yeah what a fucking did thing you say to him, yeah did you say to him well listen buddy i got cancer and lived <laughs> yeah well i i don't exactly remember what i said to it but under the circumstances i was working for a congressman right so i couldn't really react a certain way right i had to say well i i, I probably said something to the effect of hey man i get it I, I i actually understand i actually was diagnosed with leukemia in 2015 this is my experience and i probably went through it and i am i am incredibly sorry for the 
the trauma and just everything that you and your family has been through. I would never wish that on anybody. You must have been sweating as you were saying that. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I just remember leaving that phone call and saying, okay, at least, at least that person is, is somewhat not gonna hate me after that or, right. or just, you know, so yeah. Cause you never know, you never know what that other person that, you're looking at or that you're you're talking to has has been through True. so hit him with it tone one second what are you currently doing now are you in politics still or no 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 i'm in finance i'm a oh, financial okay. advisor yep oh okay where? where do you work uh northwestern mutual plug okay. it bro yeah let's get you some some people send some people your way yeah hey anybody listening to this right now or watching this right now i'll give you a free consultation nice. free comprehensive full plan if you wanted to uh to come by the office, we're we're uh, we're right in front of the Poughkeepsie IBM there in those uh, office buildings on Route Nine, uh, right across the street from the Barnes and Noble. So, uh, mm. yeah, come on in. What do you deal in typically? IULs and fucking what, what do you do? We literally do everything. So, okay. um, yeah, we don't we don't try to we we do investment services, so wealth accumulation, wealth management, things like that. We also do just life planning in general. Right. So it doesn't matter if you make a hundred grand a year, a million a year or 50 grand a year. Let's, let's come and talk about it. Let's see how we can, how, how we can meet you, build a relationship with you um, and achieve those goals that you have for you and your family for now and in the future, all the way to the end. You know, we maximize tax strategies, what bucket to take from. If the market's down and your 401k is down that year, should we, should we look for another avenue of approach now so that in 30 years from now, you're not taken out of your, you're not going to, run out of your 401k too early and just run out of money in retirement, you know, things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Protection of your financial future. Providing that financial security. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to hit tone. you with the big question. Here it is. And you've been through a lot of life. So at the end of the day, what is your message to everyone out there? Develop your relationships with your friends and family. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, that's really all you got. Mm. And and you're going to know who your true friends are. And I'm not saying that I, I don't have true friends or that, you know, I'm just saying that you're, the people that support you throughout life are going to come and go. Make sure you you hold on to that and you you understand that because that's that's really everything at the end of the day. So, yeah. Just, I like that. Just try to be happy and, and uh, do... Do what makes you happy also. Yeah. Because you don't know how life short how short life is really gonna be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well Nick, thank you for coming on. Yeah, that incredible. was an incredible, incredible podcast. Your story is ridiculous. So thank you again. Appreciate it.